This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants, to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this too will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September. And the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this series on tree planting and agroforestry. Now, just as promised from last week's episode exploring the wide and unknown varieties of fruit and nut trees in cold climates, we're going to go deeper into getting forest gardens established in frigid zones. Now, it turns out that there's a lot of planting options for people who live in hardiness zones 6 and below. There are even some advantages in maintenance and pest pressure since you get a long dormant season and the low temperatures prevent a lot of warmer climate pests from reproducing. Now to learn more about all of the unique benefits and challenges of getting a diverse forest garden established in the cold north, I reached out to Danny Baker, the co-owner of Cross Island Farms on Wellesley Island in the St. Lawrence River between New York and Canada, where they raise certified organic produce and grass-fed beef and goats. Now Danny and her husband David purchased their 102-acre farmstead only after retiring from their careers. They became intrigued by the idea of making the land productive again while being good stewards of the land and the water resources that were entrusted to them. Danny is a self-taught gardener who learned her craft by immersing herself in reading, poring over nursery catalogs, attending workshops on permaculture and gardening, and enthusiastic trial and error experimentation. Danny now conducts workshops and tours at her edible forest garden as well as giving presentations at organic farming conferences and other venues. In this interview, Danny and I start by talking about what inspired her to start her forest garden after retirement and how she built up her knowledge and experience so quickly. 
We then dive right into the practical aspects of how she worked to get her wide variety of perennial species established on her heavy clay and waterlogged site. She also gives insights into pest and disease management, her long-term maintenance strategies for the system, the plant guilds that she's found success with, and a whole lot more. And be sure to stick around till the end too where Danny gives great advice on managing volunteers and how to get started planting your own forest garden at any scale. And now I'll hand things over to Danny Baker. Danny, you have a really interesting story about how you got started farming in the first place, but okay. also how you ended up uh, in the little island. What first inspired you to get into forest gardening specifically? Well, um, we started, I was about to retire from a job as a psychologist, and I was freaking out about what I was going to do with all my idle time. So we bought 100 acres on Wellesley Island, which is an interstate accessed island in the middle of the St. Lawrence River in northern New York State, um, just a, literally a stone's throw from Canada. And so we started farming. I was the vegetable lady. My partner was the animal guy. Um, and... Uh, Seven years into it, I always like to broaden my, my um, knowledge of agriculture. So there was a, uh, a course offered at the local cooperative extension on permaculture. And I'd never heard the word before. I didn't know what it was, but I said, I'm gonna see what this is about. So I went to it and it talked all about planting a garden that basically emulates nature specifically a forest edge and it was and you build in all the plants that that provide all the nutrients and the pest protection and the, the pollinate and attract all the pollinators and the beneficial insects to for your food producing plants so your labor in terms of adding amendments over time is essentially nil and it was it was like a revelation to me it just made so much sense to do that and so I, before it was a two hour class, before it was over, I decided I was going to plant an edible forest garden. And I came home, I told my partner, Dave, I need a fence because we have huge deer pressure here on the island. So I have, you have to keep the deer out. You can't let them eat all your seedlings because you'll never have anything grow. So um, he did, he, we found half an acre that wasn't part of his pasture. And he fenced it in with a nice heavy duty fence with electric wires and we baited it anyway so we effectively kept the deer out and that was my plot and so um i thought i was going to be able to plant right away this was march i thought i was going to it was going to be able to plant that year but when as i looked into the subject matter more i realized there was a good deal of planning that needed to be done and land prep before i was ready to plant so i i realized i'd have to wait a year till the next spring to do my planting but meanwhile, I started studying my land and envisioning the garden, the eventual garden, um, and just went from there. So with very little background and introduction and education into this, you got started pretty quickly. Can you tell me a bit more about how that design process went? Because I know a lot of people who've taken permaculture courses, including myself, who have sometimes felt lost with just the amount of options that are available to you after taking a course like that. What was your process for narrowing it down and figuring out what works specifically on your site? I read a lot of books by, by professionals in the field. Um, 
David Jackie's second volume. Um, not, I never the first volume, the second volume. Um, uh, Martin Crawford's works. Um, just a number of uh, Reich's talk about landscaping with edibles. So I read a lot of books. Um, Steph Holzer out of um, Austria has a wonderful permaculture farm there. I visited some sites where these uh, these plantings existed in Holyoke, Mass, and um, in a southern Quebec. And I did go down to Reich's. He's not really a permaculturist, but to 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 sample some of his uh, unusual trees and bushes and fruits. Um, anyway, and I studied my land and I did a map of my land. I studied it for four seasons because uh, everything changes as the seasons progress. Um, you, need to, you need to understand how the sun moves around your property, uh, what areas are wet, what areas are dry as the summer progresses, um, where water may flow, where water may settle, the slopes of the land, because for every for every, um, in my area, for every uh, degree of south-facing slope, you gain two um, growing days. And for every day of north face, uh, every um, degree of north-facing slope, you lose two growing days. And that's very important because I'm in a, a hardiness, American USDA hardiness zone four with a very short growing season, relatively speaking. So it's very important to know what all those natural micro microclimates are if you wanna grow, certain plants that require a longer growing season, south facing, southwest facing slope is really ideal. For drainage, anything up on a hill is gonna be better drain, anything down in a valley is gonna be a little wetter. Um, you wanna look for frost pockets. We start getting frost often in late September and they don't end until May 22nd is the average last frost day here. I just planted my tomatoes yesterday. It's only May 10th, I hope. Um, I hope they don't get hit. Anyway, um, so uh, just studying all the aspects of the land, if there are any structures or trees or, uh, or you know, phone lines above, whatever, these need to be noted. Um, I usually just start with a rough sketch uh, where I, I label the, the different aspects that I've observed. And then I do an actual two scale drawing using graph paper. I use one square equal one foot. My garden was about 100 by 200 feet, so I needed to tape together about eight different pieces of graph paper to do it. So then I did a two-scale drawing by actually uh, going back and forth from my paper map to the land, measuring back and forth to make sure I was accurate. Um, and as I was studying the land, I started to en envision what I wanted to do there. Now, we have a farm, so I kind of wanted to make the garden um, a public place. So I decided I needed to have a big, a large gathering area. Um, and I needed to make the entry and that gathering area very solid because what if, uh, what if we had an event there where a catering truck had a driving? Um, or, you know, we, somebody wanted to use it for a wedding and they had to put down a dance floor and bring in heavy equipment. So um, I, I, I was lucky that um, the contractor I hired to do some of the, the landscaping with the backhoe had just dug out a foundation um, in a town nearby and, the, and he had dug out a whole bunch of limestone slabs. There's a lot of natural limestone here because it used to be a sea, believe it or not. Um, anyway, and he didn't want it. So he offered it to me for the cost of, of trucking it to my garden. So I had all this six inch thick 
giant slabs. I mean, these, these slabs were like three by four giant slabs of limestone to, to lay an entry road, a huge uh, 30 by 30 patio, and then continue the road out the back gate. Um, so I, that was part of the design. And then I wanted to, um, I wanted to push the envelope on my hardiness zone. So I wanted to try some plants, some trees and bushes and ground covers that are not necessarily hardy to zone four, maybe zone five. But I thought with global warming, um, the, the, the cold winters might abate a little bit and I, some of these things might survive and um, it would be a good experiment. So I did plan on that. Uh, and I don't know what else to tell you. That's the way I got started um, reading catalogs because I'll tell you 95% of the plants that I ended up planting, I'd never seen or heard of. So it was a whole education for me about all the wonderful edible plants that existed that could possibly grow in my region, including perennial vegetables, which I'd never even heard of. And now I'm just enamored of them. I've been going out late April and early this month, I've been going out and collecting um, vegetables that I only planted once several years ago um, and making frittatas and salads and stir fries. So I'm very excited about those. And that's remarkable. You really did do your research and it's fascinating to hear how many of those different elements from the landscape as well as what you desire to get out of it mm -hmm. and your consideration of everything from energy flows to different uses and access out into the future are the things that informed what you have been, I would imagine, tweaking and adjusting ever since that point. Yes. And you also mentioned in your book that you have had some very difficult soil to work with on the island where you are. Could you describe some of those challenges and what you sure. did to overcome them? Well, a couple of features of my soil. My soil is primarily very heavy clay. And when I say heavy clay, before I started to amend it, if I stuck a shovel in the ground, a big clot of clay would come up on the shovel like you could throw, you could make a pot out. You could use it for pottery. That's how dense and, and uh, compacted it was. So I knew I had to do something about that. So that first year while I was studying my ground, I frost seeded it with three different kinds of clover. I had some leftover seed. And I know that clover not only does it fix nitrogen, which the soil probably could benefit from and the plants that I was going to plant, but also it has very deep tap roots and it breaks up um, clay and it actually can get down to the subsoil and start breaking that up as well. So um, I did plant the second year. So that spring, that was the, that I took the course in March and then the following spring was when I did the frost seeding of the clover and I started to plant some trees. And when I, I dug the holes for those trees, as I mentioned, the, the um, dirt came out in these huge clods. But the next year when I planted trees, it was already broken up into half an inch or one inch pieces. So the clover had done this wonderful job. Not only did I use that as a cover crop initially, but I also used copious quantities of wood chips and leaves and some partially um, composted yard waste that I got from a summer colony down the road and just kept adding this on the surface. There's no need to till it in. The soil life will take care of it as long as it has contact with the soil and eventually pull it back down into the soil and add the organic matter to the soil to again, aerate it and 
um, make it drain better. That's the drainage is a huge problem with heavy clay. And the other thing I had that was problematic was some areas, this is, I, after three years, it wasn't enough to have half an acre to manage. I decided to expand it another half acre. And in that half acre, about a third of it is sodden ground with a water table that's above the surface for a good part of the year. So that was another challenge that I needed to face. Um, and I've dealt with that in a number of ways. I've made small raised beds. I've, I've tried to sheet mulch repeatedly to raise the soil level. And I've also, the most successful um, way of dealing with it, I believe is um, I've been um, building Hugo culture mounds that raise the planting area above the groundwater. And those have worked really well so far for me. I've also chosen plants, which can be very challenging, that can tolerate saturated soil. But in my trial and error experimentation, I found some that do super well, like high bush cranberries. Love it. And they're productive of fruit. They're beautiful in four seasons. That's one thing I emphasize in the book and in my own landscaping. I, I really appreciate um, plants that give you four seasons of, of beauty. So that's, that's one because they hold their berries all winter. In addition to having lovely flowers in the spring and um, ripening berries through the summer and then um, lovely leaf color in the fall. <laughs> that's such a perfect example. I love the use of cranberries there because they are originally a, a wetland or a bog plant, aren't they? And they well, like that. These are actually, uh, this is not a true cranberry. The cranberries you're familiar with grow, their vines on the ground that grow in bogs. These are actually in the verbenum family, they're bushes, they're by 10 foot by 10 foot. So they're, and they have a, a cranberry-like berry that you can use in the same way as you use cranberries. Oh, but, but it's actually a different species. It is totally different. And I'd never heard of it before wow. I started reading these books and it said, likes it wet. Okay, I'm gonna try. <laughs> Oh, that's perfect. I'm just like you. I get such a kick about finding new plants, especially ones that do well in the specific niches of your land. Mm -hmm. And let's continue to go deeper into that because you talked about some of the limitations of growing in zone four. And right. though that's definitely not the climate that I'm in now, I'm going to be moving to a zone eight pretty soon. I grew up in a zone four in Minnesota, and I remember quite a bit from that environment. What have been some of the biggest challenges in selecting plants and finding ways of cultivating things there? And what have been some of the unexpected benefits that you found? Mm. Well, the first thing I, I, that comes to mind offhand is in, in some of the plants that I've chosen that are borderline zone four, I've had a lot of winter kill above the snow. Sometimes I've got, I've had complete winter kill, <laughs> but often above the snow. So as long as I have snow cover, um, and if it's a grafted plant and the graft is below the snow, the plant remains alive above the graft, even though the rest of it is dead. So I've had, that's happened. I've planted Asian pears, which are borderline <laughs> zone four, and they have actually been winter killed more than once. But if I have a more temperate winter, in between, they, they flower the second year. So they've grown back from above the graft. And then if I, if I don't have a really bad winter the next winter, they flowered and fruited. So for me, even to get fruit every fourth year is just fabulous because who, who can grow Asian pears up in 
the North country, you know? So that's one example, but they, I do get winter killed this year. We had a pretty harsh, we had a zone seven winter, two winters ago, everything lived. Zone seven means it didn't go below zero. Last winter, it went down to minus 20 or thereabouts numerous times. And I'm just starting to notice a couple of my Asian pears, my oldest ones, look like they're dead. Uh, maybe completely one, it didn't look too healthy last year. The other one, there's a couple of live branches, but the main stem looks like a goner. Uh, some autumn olive that are usually uh, rated for zone five and have done pretty well for me. Some of them look like they're dead down to the ground, but they'll come back from the roots. I know that from experience. Others seem to be fine. And I can't tell why one would die and one wouldn't. But anyway, those are just some examples of uh, some of the problems. Now, there's another problem I've had with sweet cherries, another borderline plant. Um, one season, we had a very temperate fall that lasted till mid-January. And then it went down to between minus 20 and minus 30 suddenly in the middle of January. Well, stone fruits like peaches and, um, and sweet cherries, they harden off, they get ready for the winter from the, the smallest branches first and they gradually work their way down to the trunks. Well, I don't think my, some of my cherries had time to do that because it was such a sudden change. And I had my, my largest sweet cherries, three of them were, were goners. The younger ones probably had more time to get down to their trunks and they, they survived. So that's just another example. Um, some of the benefits though, are things like tamarack. Tamarack trees are found in the far North and they're only viable to, to zone six. So that's something that I can grow and you couldn't in your zone eight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you had to give me on another, one thing, huh? <laughs> and there's a, well, I actually no, don't know that well. There's more. There's more. There's can you describe that tree for me? I'm sorry. I don't know the tamarack oh, tree. Well, it's it's a lovely tree. It's um it's it's a conifer that that loses its needles in the fall. They turn golden yellow and they fall. They fall off. It has pine cones, little pine cones that are actually purple when they first form in the spring, and then they turn brown. You know. Um, it grows quite tall, it grows very rapidly, it likes it wet, it's, it's, it's actually a, a tree found in bogs. Um, and um, because it's, it's used to being around water, the trunks are very rot resistant. So you can grow it for timber, um, for rot resistant um, fence posts and, I, and for corduroy roads where you lay them on the ground to make a solid surface where it's wet. Um, and it's just a beautiful tree. I mean, I think it's, when the needles come out in the spring, they're a pale green and they're coming out right now and it's just so delightful to look at. So um, that's something that I can grow. Um, something else I can grow is something called honeyberry, which is a native to the Arctic Circle, really probably all around the world. Um, it's, it's viable to zone two. And so I can grow it here. I, I think you can grow it in warmer climates too. But there are some, there are a number of plants that need a cold winter in order to be viable, yeah. like rhubarb. And um, you get a little too warm and they just won't grow for you because they don't have the cold winter. So those are just, a, you know, three examples of things that I can grow well. And are honeyberries the ones that also go by the name Hascap? Yes, 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 okay. they are. I've heard I'm them a called big, a few things. I wanted to make sure. I'm a big fan of them. Um, they have the same blue blushes, blueberries, but they're kind of oval in shape. Um, very complex flavor. 
They don't need acid soil. They're very drought. This is in contrast to blueberries. They're very drought tolerant. Um, they, uh, they, they uh, bloom early and they have fruit in June, a month before any blueberries I'm aware of. And um, just a delightful plant. And I know they're cultivated um, in several countries, Japan, Russia, Canada, and now they've begun to be cultivated in the US. Nice. See, that's what I'm actually going to trial here because the property where I'm moving has a microclimate down in the valley of the mountain uh -huh. where it's at, which uh -huh. is probably like uh, zone 7B, might be about as cold as it gets. I, uh -huh. I might be able to get away with those ones there. Uh -huh. I'm going to give it a uh -huh. shot because otherwise I cannot find them around here and it could be an interesting one to introduce to a little niche market. Oh, yeah. That'd and be, nice. so I also know that a big part, of course, of the permaculture approach to planting is to leverage the diversity of plant communities for resilience and support of your main cultivars, kind of like you mentioned at the beginning. Right. And I'm wondering what kinds of plant communities and support species that you found to be successful in your unique context. Well, um, this is a work in progress, in process. It's not... <laughs> I, I, I only have a few positive conclusions I could share at the moment because, um, you know, I, I've never done perennial flower gardening, but I think it's probably similar. You put things together you think are going to get along and then you discover they don't. <laughs> but it takes time. These are perennials. So you may not realize in the first or second year that you have an issue, but by the third year now, one has overrun the other. And now you have to kind of, you know, either accept that or, or start again or do something. So um, there are a number of plants that are, have done well. And I guess we're talking herbaceous and ground covers, which is my biggest challenge. I had least familiarity with those. Um, in terms of uh, bush of uh, uh, woody plants, um, I've had a lot of luck. So I've tried, I have about 25 different nitrogen fixing plants growing in my garden. Many of them are woody. Um, they've done very well. I really haven't had major issues unless they were just not appropriate for my zone. Um, I've even something like licorice, which by the way is a nitrogen fixer, it's a legume. Um, I started them from seed. They, it, the the uh, catalog said they were only good for zone six, but they've come up every year. Wow! In my garden, so you know, I, I had luck with those. Um, so the nitrogen fixers, I've been good. Now um, there's there's basically four categories of supportive plants: nitrogen fixers, beneficial attractors. So these are flowering plants that not only attract pollinators but attract insects that are going to take care of your other your pest insects. So uh, there's such a huge variety of those. Um, I really haven't had a problem providing them. Not only do the fruit and berry bushes flower, but lots of perennial vegetables flower, um, other kinds of edibles, strawberries. These are all things that flower. So um, I don't even, you know, it's said that you want to have something flowering from as early in the season to as late in the season so you can feed your pollinators and your beneficials continuously. Um, I never tried to plant things to make sure I covered every week. I just planted everything. I have over 300 different things in my garden. I just planted stuff and I haven't really noticed a time of year when nothing's flowering. 
Um, even in a time of drought, um, I have something called bird's foot trefoil. That's actually not native, but has naturalized all over here. Um, it's a legume and it flowers. It's very drought tolerant. So when nothing else is flowering because it's too dry, it's flowering in the cracks between my rocks. Amazing. So, yeah, I have something all the time. Um, and then um, uh, uh, nutrient accumulators. So these are plants that have deep tap roots that concentrate in their leaves one or more important nutrients that um, when those leaves uh, die off in the fall or and, and start to decay, those nutrients become available to the other plants this around. And um, dandelions are an example. I mean, I used to hate them, but now I'm coming to love them. No, they, dandelions, um, comfrey is the nutrient accumulator, what I call par excellence. It's a, it's a large plant. It, it produces copious amounts of organic matter. You can cut and drop those long stems and leaves around plants that you think might need a little more potassium or phosphorus. Um, it accumulates six different nutrients in the leaves. Um, it also has flowers that attract beneficials. It also is very, very useful medicinally um, to heal uh, wounds and bones. And um, you can make a sad out of it. You can make a, a compress out of it. It's good uh, nutri nutrition for animals, <laughs> just has multiple uses. Um, and so that's, and it's very hardy and you can't kill it once you plant it. So I waited four years before I, I decided to put comfrey in my garden because I, I knew I wouldn't be able to get rid of it once I planted it. I wanted to be sure I put it in the right spot so it wouldn't be a problem. Um, so um, that's an example of a nutrient accumulator. And then there's a category called um, aromatic pest confusers. Now, I'm not sure there's any, there's a lot of research supporting this, but it's thought that um, aromatic herbs and, and um, plants of the onion family that give off um, pretty strong scents uh, will confuse pest insects that may be coming in and looking for a specific host plant. And then they encounter, let's say, you know, a mass of oregano. And now they, with that odor, now what happened to the plum? They can't find the plum. Uh, the other thing is too, that um, these herbs like lavender, oregano, um, they sublimate oils that actually have antifungal qualities. This is why they're used medicinally by people, or one of the reasons. So that's another benefit of those kinds of plants to scatter them around your garden because they may be providing a little protection against fungal disease. Um, so um, I've just trial and error. I've tried everything that I thought could, I could grow. And I might try it two or three times before I accept the fact that I can't grow it or the first time and from then on it's working for me. So, um, but I do find it challenging to combine plants together and have some longevity of the combination. I have, um, I have some successful combinations. And then I have others that are still kind of evolving. I mean, that's one of the beauties of a perennial planting. Okay. You, you plant an annual garden, you till it up every year, you plant everything, you cultivate, you weed, you water, you know, you do all that. And then at the end of the season, it's annual, everything dies, you start again. With a perennial garden, you, if you're lucky, you plant it once. And then, and you don't disturb the soil, except that one time. Um, and eventually, theoretically, the plants you desire cover the ground entirely. So there's no room for weeds to take hold. There's no more mulching required. Well, 
it's the garden is naturally mulched as the larger trees um, lose their leaves, just like in a forest, the ground is mulched every fall for you. <laughs> I'm getting away from myself. Anyway. Um, <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I agree. I, I am a big proponent of integrating perennials into a garden and obviously, you know, having a, a tree based ecosystem. It works perfectly for that because when grasses start to take over, they can compete and outcompete your trees, especially when they're young. They mm -hmm. tend to do better in these combinations, in these communities of beneficial perennials that help fill niches that are necessary mm -hmm. for a healthy ecosystem. Right. But I know that we're both aware that planting is only the first step of the garden and that maintenance is kind of where you spend a lot more of your time, especially in the long run. Can you talk about some of the ways that you maintain the health of your plants and mm -hmm. how you naturally control pests and disease. Okay. Well, uh, first I just wanna say, I agree with you. There is a lot of maintenance depending on the size of your plot. I mean, if you do a, you don't have to do a half an acre in this kind of planting. You can do a foundation planting. You have a 20 foot side of your house. You can, you can do a forest garden you know, by six feet. You can do a forest garden there. You can do an edible hedge to screen your view of your neighbors. You can have one fruit tree surrounded by you know, other uh, food bearing plants and beneficial plants in your backyard. It doesn't have to be a huge undertaking. And depending on the scale, we'll, we'll determine how much work there is. In any case, once it's, once it's planted and established, for the amount of space, it's gonna be a lot less work than an annual vegetable garden. And I have experience with both, believe me. I could never, an acre of annual vegetables. Oh man. Would be, and I have an acre edible forest and it's, it's only a fraction of the work. So um, that being said, what do I do? Well, in my book, actually I have in the appendix, I have, um, a section where I talk about you know, the tasks you need to do through, through the seasons to maintain your garden. So it, right now, um, well, it, starting in the winter, um, there's not a whole lot of work in the winter, but you need to check to make sure the deer aren't getting in. <laughs> and and um, in, my, in my region, you need to make sure I have to protect the trunks of my plants um, from rodents that will girdle the, the, the bark, will eat the bark under the snow and can actually kill a plant that way. So I have um, every, I have permanent protections around my trees, but around my bushes, I need to install them every year in the fall. I use, um, I use um, metal window screening that I cut to wrap around the base of a bush because the bush has many branches coming out. You can't really put a cylindrical protector around there. So I wrap it around, I, I clip it with a couple of wooden clothespins. And in the winter, I need to make sure the snow hasn't over come above the top edge of that because if it does, then the rodents can get to the bark through the snow. So I just go out, like if we have a big snow, which is maybe a couple of times a season, and um, clear, clear the snow from inside and outside. That just so the metal is showing above it that way, I'm, I'm good. Um, in late winter, it's time to prune. So I do a lot of pruning of my berry bushes. Um, some of the natives don't require it, 
but um, I find even with the uh, honeyberries, which are native, uncluttering the bush, cutting out the ones that touch the, the stems that touch the ground, opening up the center to let in more light, um, thinning out any crossing uh, branches and any that seem to be congesting um, each other um, is very helpful. It not only makes it easier to pick, but the berries will be bigger and the plant will just be healthier. So I have a lot of currants. <laughs> I have a lot of black, red, and currants. I prune those, I prune my honeyberries. Um, I do a little tree pruning. I'm not that up on, I, I'm just learning how to do this, but um, this is in late winter, early spring. Now this month in May, um, I prune my grapes. So um, I have grapes growing along fences and I, I do that. Um, Mulching is something that I will do year round um, to cover any bare ground or occasionally I need to resheet mulch an area because I have an infestation of weeds. Um, you can cut this out, right? You <laughs> yeah, I can get that part out. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, it's okay. So sheet mulching, I can do any time of the year um, to create a new bed or to to uh, try to recover a bed that's been infested. Right now, honestly, I have a problem with black, black grass, which is uh, an invasive perennial grass. In my second edition, I'm gonna talk about putting barriers around your bed so that that can't go in. But I didn't know about that when I started my garden. And now that it's in there, I don't wanna dig it out because I don't wanna, there's bushes and other plants all around and that would disrupt their roots. So I'm just sheet mulching to knock it back a bit. So I've been doing a lot of that this year. The reason it got away from me was because I was editing the book last summer. <laughs> so I didn't, I wasn't paying that much attention to the garden. Sure. Um, but it's okay. I'm little by little, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, getting to it. Um, so doing that, um, you know, replacing plants that died, um, there's a lot less of that. It's, I mean, the initial planting is pretty major, depending on how large a, a plot you're, you're planting. But um, once it's established, it's just a matter of, oh, you know, there's a little space here. I think I'll put something here. Or this bush is a little crowded. I think I need to move it to another spot where it might be happier. Um, and if things die, you might choose to replace them with something else. Sure. Did I answer your question? I don't think yeah, I yeah, for sure. <laughs> but uh, what do you do about perhaps infestations or insects or okay. disease? Does that That's come a up? Good well, pest disease. I have I have issues with a, a pest called plum curculio, which I haven't been able to address. I haven't figured out how to address it yet because the life cycle of this insect is. It flies in from the woods. We have a lot of woods around us. It infests all the fruits of the plum and, uh, and plum fruit family, of the uh, rather the um, stone fruit and plum fruit family. In my case, especially my plums and my Asian pears. Um, so it it enters those uh, young uh, fruits, and then those fruits fall to the ground, and the larvae go into the ground, they go through their cycles and then they, they come out in August and they fly back to the woods. So I've tried a number of things to just try to deal with them. Um, nothing's really worked so far, but then see the life cycle isn't contained in the garden. So as long as they're coming in from the woods, I'm not sure. 
I'm hoping that at some point things will balance out and they'll only infest my, my fruit trees enough to basically thin them for me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that'll happen someday. But at this moment, um, I don't have much of a plum harvest because they're pretty much all, all taken out by that pest. And then my Asian pears, I might, well, Asian pears are very productive of fruit. They have to be thinned anyway, but I might get six that haven't been infested out of literally hundreds on a tree. Hmm. Um, but I'm happy with the six. I'm thrilled. <laughs> um, okay, so that's one issue I haven't been able to deal with. Um, however, things like caterpillars and, and insect pests, um, I've, I've been quite successful with those because I put birdhouses all around my garden. And so birds love to eat bugs. And um, I learned from Stefan, I can't pronounce his last name. Yes. Subkoiak. Yes, thank you so much. He's got a, he's got a five acre permaculture orchard in southern Quebec in Canada, and I visited his farm and he has birdhouses everywhere. And he says if he sees a caterpillar nest on a branch, he doesn't do anything, and the birds will eat them before those caterpillars move to another branch. So before I had issues with caterpillars before I installed birdhouses. But once I saw that and I thought, you know, I got to try this. Now I do just what he does. If I see a caterpillar nest, I leave it alone. And before you know it, the birds have eaten all the caterpillars and it doesn't move to another, another branch. And so the caterpillars eat a few leaves. The plants are so resilient, they can take that. They can't take, you know, they, they don't like being stripped entirely. But so that's worked with that. And I'm sure with other um, insect pests, I also um, have intentionally uh, planted and also discovered some trap crops in my garden. So a trap crop is a plant that attracts bugs away from the plants that you don't want them to nest with. So for example, for aphids, um, I noticed that uh, uh, blue lupin and also um, hairy vetch uh, are trap crops for aphids. They congregate on the, on the stems of these plants and they're never on my other plants. I first noticed this in my annual vegetable garden. They were never on my kale, but they were always on the hairy vetch. Um, and then things like um, for Japanese beetles, I know I have ragusa roses in my garden and they seem to attract the beetles that don't mess with my raspberries. And then um, for birds, you know, birds do like to eat berries, but they're more on balance, they're more, be they're more beneficial than not. Um, I, I've planted elderberries along the border of, of one of my gardens and they're ripening around the same time as my grapes are ripening. And I noticed that the birds prefer the elderberries to the grapes. So they're eating the elderberries and leaving the grapes alone. And that's fine with me because I have an abundance of elderberries. I can't use all of them. Um, so those are some examples of dealing with insects pests. Diseases, um, because my, my, my soil is heavy clay, it's quite, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't drain well. So plants that need really good drainage tend to get diseases, fungal diseases related to too much moisture. Sure. Um, and I've just over time either moved them to higher ground if I saw, if I saw they were having issues or uh, realized I just can't expect food from them. So Juneberry is an example of a native bush that um, I've never had, I've had, I've grown the cultivars that are the, the bushy ones that are, are uh, have been developed to produce good fruit. Um, for 10 years, I've never had fruit. I've seen, I've seen 
fungal spores growing out of the immature fruit. <laughs> it just, I, in, they grow, these plants grow, grow wild in my woods, um, in the surrounding woods, and they seem to like to be on the rocky ridges where, you know, the drainage is fabulous, maybe not a lot of soil, but they, maybe that's their niche because there's not a lot of competition there, but they do really well there. They don't do well in my clay. So that's an example of just, you know, I still have them. They, they flower beautifully and whatever fruit they might get gets eaten by the birds before it's ripe enough for me. So I'm happy about that. But um, I realized I'm not going to ever see fruit. But then I have honeyberries. So <laughs> it all balances out, I'm sure. Yep. And, you know, this is all connected to a long term learning journey as an ecology evolves as well. Right. That's right. And it sounds like you've leveraged really well the diversity of life in your orchard, in your, your edible garden, to take care of a lot of the tasks that you would otherwise have to do with technology or with labor. And just like you mentioned before, this is far less work than a similar sized annual garden. But can you give me an idea of how many hours or you know, how much labor in different seasons is required to maintain this? Mm. Wow. Uh, well, uh, my first answer to that is the biggest chunk of labor is the harvesting. Yeah. When I have, when starting in June, when my berry plants start to ripen, I have a lot of them and it's, it's quite labor intensive to pick them. Um, some, some of the berries need to be picked daily, like raspberries. So that's a daily hour, hour and a half chore one when they're ripe and I've arranged it now so that I'll have summer raspberries from July right through till September. So um, not every crop is as productive as, as the others, but um, you know, you have to figure, you know, an hour and a half to pick the berries and they need to be picked every day because they ripen daily. And uh, you don't want, you don't want berries to go bad on the vine because then you're attracting pests. So right. one of one of the, the practices to prevent pests and disease is to is what's called good sanitation, and that means you're picking everything. You're not letting things rot on the vine. Plus, um, you're uh, you're pruning out congestion, so there's good air circulation. So with raspberries, I have my first crop of my first summer raspberry crop probably ends around uh, first week in August. It's time to cut out those stems because they're done. They're two years old, they're done to make room for the other stems that are coming up from the fall crop. So, you know, that kind of thing uh, is a little time consuming, but mostly is the harvesting. Um, you know, uh, spot weeding um, continues, pruning out dead stuff. Um, how many hours? I, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> I'm sure it varies right now, a lot too by season. It does. Right now, um, I've been finishing pruning. I've been doing a lot of sheet mulching to make up for my, my negligence last year. Um, I'd say I'm spending about, and I'm mowing. So it's, mid, it's getting to be the middle of May, first time to mow my paths, because uh, I do have sod you know, in some pathways. So I'd say I don't work every day. I'd say maybe three hours a day right now. That's pretty reasonable, especially for retirement job <laughs> and, and this is this is over an acre right you know so i mean if you have just like i said before foundation planting you know you're gonna when you go out to harvest your herbs you'll pull a couple of weeds that'll be it yeah. you know or, or you'll see a bare spot and you'll throw a little mulch there 
it's not going to be huge. Yeah. And I know you also accept volunteers through woofing programs and perhaps others. How yes. has that worked out with assistance from people who are perhaps learning this for the first time and the turnover that, that goes along with it? Because I've managed volunteers on our farm back when I was in Guatemala. And sometimes managing people can take more time than managing plants. How, how does it work out for you? It does. You're right. You're right. Um, well, <clears throat> the number of volunteers we have ebbs and flows with the economy. When there are a lot of jobs available, <laughs> we have a dearth of volunteers. The first, the first year of COVID, we had a lot of volunteers. I can there was no work to be had and people wanted to get out of the cities. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, you're right. It depends. It is, it's, it's very time consuming to supervise volunteers. Uh, this year, I haven't planned on a lot of volunteers because I'm going to be promoting my book. I'm going to be spending a lot of time at events, either locally or elsewhere, promoting the book. And I didn't, I knew I couldn't have a lot of people here because I wouldn't be here to make sure they were doing, you know, to train them and make sure they were doing things properly. Um, on balance, we've had wonderful luck with volunteers. I had fat, I had a couple of um, landscape architect students who helped me with my garden. Originally, I had people from environmental schools who also helped me tremendously. Um, you know, we have a local, we have a, um, an army base locally. And as, as soldiers are, are leaving the service, there are special programs that help them uh, learn how to be farmers. If that's what they choose to do after the army, we've had wonderful success with some volunteers from there. My best friend is someone who was the wife of a soldier who came, she had three preschoolers and she, um, she had to get away from them. So she put them in daycare for a couple hours a week and came to the farm for a year and a half. She had a black thumb when she started. She now has a green thumb. She's actually become my best friend. We're still in touch. This was like 10 years ago when she first, well, nine years ago when she first came to the farm. Um, she comes, she and her children visit every year. Even now she lives in Texas and she's still going to be visiting this summer. Wow. So, um, and one fall, two falls ago, I had this amazing crew. I had a crew of students who all took their junior year off because they didn't want to study online. And they were all going to very prestigious schools in the States, um, Princeton, MIT, Columbia, Cornell, and they were all, all here for like two or three months. And so, of course, if, if someone stays for a length of time, as you probably know, at a certain point, they can become more independent. And your time is less, there's less demand on your time for supervision. So they stay between two and three months. And um, they were a tremendous help. And they even helped me with my book because I was writing it at the time. So one of them did my, my artwork. One of them did my CAD drawings. And one of them um, pre-edited the book. She was an English minor. She pre-edited pre the book before I sent it to the publisher. And then um, a fellow helped me with the computer, which I always have issues with. That's fantastic. It sounds like you've really had uh, an overall benefit from so many newcomers and yeah. the exchange of skills and even building new relationships with these people. Yeah. Um, and man, there's just so many more things that I could go into detail about and ask you to expand upon from your book, which I really enjoyed. But 
How about you give us a little preview about what's in there that I wasn't able to get to on this interview? Well, the book is really written to lay people. This is not written to farmers or, or, you know, it's written to just somebody who has a little plot of land, maybe around their house, or they bought some property in the country and they want to make it productive. Um, you know, you can landscape with just uh, attractive plants or you can landscape with edibles. Why not have something you can eat? Uh, so um, it starts out the first chapters talk about some of the permaculture principles that we've discussed and how to integrate them in your garden and how to how to study your land and plan your plantings and even how to plant a tree. I mean, not, not everyone's ever, some people have never done that. So I give very detailed, it's very practical. Everything is so practical in the book. Very detailed instructions, how to plant a tree, how to grow herbs from seed, for example, how to prune certain kinds of berry bushes, very specific instructions. And then um, the, the middle section of the book talks about all the different plants that you can grow and describes them and also talks about my experience with them that I hope you can learn from um, you know, and apply to your setting. So it starts with the overstory, which are plants between from 30 feet and up. And then it goes into what's called the understory uh, between uh, 10 and 20 feet, mostly, usually your fruit trees are found there, shrub layer, um, which could be up to 12 feet, herbaceous, which are plants that um, grow during the growing season and die back to the ground um, in, the, in the cold season and grow back the next year. Ground covers, plants that have edible roots, and then vines. So there's seven different layers. And also um, mushrooms. So I tell you how you can actually grow mushrooms in your backyard. Um, shiitake, oysters, and wine caps. Um, and just a little aside, I have a little section on growing um, saffron. Saffron is a crocus that actually blooms in the fall. And I thought, oh, this is from the Middle East. It's from a hot climate. No, you can actually grow it in zone four. And I've been successful. So I describe in detail how to do that. The biggest deal with that is protecting it from rodents that loved so, um, and then the final section of the book talks about um, how to combine plants, like we discussed earlier. You know, I have at least, I have probably 20 different examples of combination of plants that I've tried, and I talk about how they evolved over time. So some of them were quite stable and work well even after 10 years, and some of them had a life of their own. And I talk about how things evolved and you know, maybe some misjudgments I made, but it's all a learning experience. That's the way I see it. So you, you, do your, you make your best guess, you try, you try to, um, to make your best guess about what plants will get along with each other and in, in the habitat that you happen to have available. And then you observe what happens and make adjustments over time. So that's the last chapter, the last two chapters. And one of them, I also talk about um, four, four people I've, four women I've known who have come to my farm and learned about what I'm doing in the edible forest and then applied some of the ideas to their own gardens. And I talk about, I call them uh, inspiring stories. And they're just short, but they, but they're very accessible and they let you know that anybody can do this. Amazing. And I remember from my own look through of that book that the idea of growing saffron up in your climate was just amazing to me. It's one of those crops that I learned about when I first came here 
and it's a traditional part of the Mediterranean. But the fact that you managed to make it work up there is really cool. And there's so many gems in this book. I highly recommend it. Danny, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about not only your book um, and also your farm and the other knowledge and opportunities that you have out there? Okay, well, um, we, we offer tours of our farm and of the edible forest. Um, and uh, we do have uh, volunteers that live in, so that's always an option. Um, and you can get a hold of me. I, I have a website called theenchantededibleforest.com. And in that website, there's all the, more information about the book. There's information about the edible forest. And also I started a blog. So every so often I post a blog entry there. And I think um, very shortly we'll be posting some videos of me doing things in the garden, like harvesting edibles, which I've been doing recently, um, including mushrooms. Um, so uh, you can email me, Danny Baker at crossislandfarms.com. I'm happy to respond to an email. And um, is that pretty much cover it? <laughs> I think that covers it. I'll make sure that I link to all of those in the show notes for this episode. And Danny, before we go, can you offer any advice to listeners who are looking to get started with their own edible perennial sure. garden for the first time? Sure. Well, I would say test your soil so you know what you're dealing with. Um, follow instructions from whatever lab is doing, doing the, the evaluation. Um, study your land so you understand you know, what kinds of microclimates are, exist there. Um, and start small. I would start small. Start with a small area. And as you experience some success, build onto that. Um, and that way you'll more likely continue <laughs> than get frustrated and give up. Fantastic. Those are really good tips for getting started. Uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. It was really good to connect and I really enjoyed your book as well. I wish you the best of luck through the rest of this growing season. Thank you so much. I so appreciate your having me on your podcast. Thank you. Thanks once again to Danny Baker. I'll be posting all of the links that she mentioned in the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before I wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. In the next episode in this series on tree planting and agroforestry, I'll be speaking with Hannah Lewis, the author of the book, The Mini Forest Revolution, all about the Miyawaki method of planting fast-growing native forests that can reach maturity in as little as 10 years. This will be a great listen for anyone passionate about reforestation, but who only has a little bit of land to work on. So be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you don't miss an episode. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way. Bye.